you for joining us for the Alabama Symphony Orchestra's Conductor's Corner. Each program of Conductor's Corner is a symphony fund donor benefit and offers a virtual conversation with our talented and knowledgeable music directors. The following was recorded on October 22nd and features Kevin Fitzgerald, Assistant Conductor of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra and Music Director of the Alabama Symphony Youth Orchestra, as he takes us behind the scenes of the conducting profession, the training, the job, and the career. Okay, so one of the things that in my short life I have been asked over and over and over again by folks is, how does somebody become a conductor? What is the con conducting career path? How does someone get involved with being a conductor? You know, it just seems like a mystery to people. Even, you know, classical musicians, they wonder how someone goes from starting out as a player or, as we'll see, there are a lot of different avenues um, to getting on the podium and doing this for a living. So thought it'd be a nice opportunity to talk to you guys about these various issues and maybe kind of illuminate some things you didn't even think about when it came to the conducting career and the conducting business. All right, so first of all, I'd like to read this little disclaimer. It's, it sounds really serious, but it's really not. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation do not reflect the views, policies, or job description of the Alabama Symphonic Association and or the Alabama Symphony Orchestra musicians, staff, and board of directors. The information in this presentation is based on the education, experiences, and research done by the presenter, me. The information in this presentation is intended to be a general education on the subject and is by no means exhaustive. Differing opinions and viewpoints are valid and should also be considered. So why am I telling you this? Um, me, Kevin, I'm a conductor. I have my own thoughts and opinions on things. Um, I'm employed by a reputable organization. They have their own policies in place about some of these things. And I'm just trying to share what is the most general view on the conducting career, job, and training out there. So this is, I'm trying to give a more global picture. So if you hear something and you're wondering about it, it doesn't necessarily apply to the ASO. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So the first question I get asked all the time, how does one become a conductor? No two conductors have the same path to the podium. Any musician can conduct who has the right balance of talent, musicianship, charisma, and nerve. This path is not for the faint of heart. And frankly, no path as a musician is for the faint of heart. This is an extremely competitive field. It's an extremely tough life at times. It's very rewarding, but you know the, the journey can be a lot more complicated than other careers. Um, there's a few criteria that pop up when you look at all conductors, no matter what level they're at. If they're at the university level, public school, um, regional orchestra, major orchestra, international orchestra, whatever you're talking about, they all kind of have a similar theme. And they, that's what these points are here. So the general criteria is years of dedicated study to an instrument, ideally reaching a professional standard. So it's very difficult to do the job of a conductor if you are not able to have a sense of authority about music that you've gained from studying an instrument. So there is no conductor in the world that cannot play an instrument, or at least did not play an instrument for many, many years at a high level. So you know, that is something to think about. Number two, advanced training in ear training, music theory and composition, orchestration, music history, and history in general. Keyboard skills are also very useful. This second bullet is mainly just saying that in order to be successful as a conductor, you have to have many, many, many skill sets. And there are a lot of different tools needed to be, to be a successful interpreter of a, of a piece of music. So not all conductors are experts on everything. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses, and we come up with our own kind of toolbox for doing the job. Number three, training in conducting specifically. So obviously at some point you have to learn how to physically, you know, hold the baton, do the beat patterns, cueing, all the basic fundamentals. You have to learn that. So 
that can be done in school. It can be done privately. It can be done in workshops, master classes, um, and you can actually study conducting as a degree program. I learned my master's in conducting, and um, you can get a doctorate in conducting. And in Europe and Asia, you can also get a bachelor's degree. So it's all in our form altogether. Every conductor has their own unique background and perspective. So no two conductors, again, have the same path, but their perspective on their job and their role uh, with the orchestra is always affected slightly by their background in a positive way, gives them their own viewpoint. So here are just five examples of some legends, if you will, of their backgrounds. So uh, you have Pierre Boulez, who was first a composer and became a conductor. Daniel Barenboim was a pianist first and foremost, and then he became a conductor. Sir Colin Davis, who is the longest tenured musician of the London Symphony Orchestra, was a clarinetist and then became a conductor. Arturo Toscanini was a cellist in an opera orchestra and then became a conductor. And Simone Young, the only one of these, well, not the youngest one of these, she was a pianist in an opera house and was a coach for many, many years, coaching singers. And now she's very well respected in both the opera and symphonic realm. So all of these people had a different background that led them to the podium. So from the training stage to the career path, building a portfolio of experience. So this might, uh, for other professional people out there, this might seem... Uh, like it makes sense. You can't just go from school to getting um, a great job. You have to prove yourself somehow. So I'm just gonna walk you through these four steps of kind of how young conductors uh, right out of school can bridge the gap to starting their career. Uh, so here it says these days, very few conductors go directly from school into the job market. Several reasons for that. It's highly competitive. For each single position, there might be anywhere from 200 to 300 applicants. Um, you, you need real life experience outside of school. You know, the conducting experience you get in school, you're conducting people your age, you're usually doing under the supervision of a professor. It doesn't directly correlate to what you would do in the real world where, you know, if I think about my job with the Alabama Symphony, oftentimes I'm the least experienced person in the room in terms of years on the job. So it's a different ball game and you have to be prepared for that. And additionally, you need to build a network of people that support your work. And that just comes from doing good work, being nice, and maintaining good relationships. Uh, next bullet here, um, young conductors must gain experience before they can be considered for a cover or assistant conductor position. We're going to talk about all the positions in a later slide, but um, my job and other conduct, uh, assistant jobs and cover conducting jobs, in a way are seen as, because they're in the lowest level of the totem pole, so to speak, they're considered by some to be entry level, but you absolutely cannot be entry level to even be considered for one of these positions because you're conducting professionals who need you to be super solid from the very beginning. So there's kind of two main ways you can go about building that experience. I just decided to call it institutional avenues for portfolio development. It sounds very fancy, but basically institutions, meaning there are pre-existing avenues that exist that you can apply for, that if you participate in them and are accepted into them, they can help you, such as participating in a summer festival, winning an international conducting competition, or even being involved in one that can help, participating in a masterclass which, with respected and often influential conductors, Studying in school with a reputable teacher who can recommend you for things, write you letters of recommendation, et cetera, and winning a fellowship or prize. If you think about it, if, if I mentioned, you remember I mentioned there's, you know, sometimes two to 300 applicants for things. You have to find a way to make your work jump out of the pile in the early stages. And so it doesn't matter how good you might be, you have to have something on paper that signifies that we should take a look at you. The next way you can do it is more in the 20th century mindset, and it's more entrepreneurial in nature. And if you combine this with institutional avenues, uh, you know, it's really strong. If you can start your own ensemble, start your own orchestra, uh, or create your own projects that can help you 
get experience and get your name out there. Um, it shows a lot of initiative. It shows a lot of creativity. It shows a lot of um, good administrative skills. If you can do something other than conduct, which no conducting job is just conducting, there's always some kind of business oriented uh, clerical stuff you got to take care of. So all of that is important. Video is everything. So this is, you know, something that I, when I tell uh, non-musicians this, and even musicians in the orchestra this, they're flabbergasted. They don't understand how important this is. So when you are in school and in that middle tr transition stage, you have to be always filming yourself conduct from the back of the orchestra. And these videos of your conducting is what you submit for job applications, summer festivals, master classes, anything you could possibly imagine to get experience and boost your resume. All of that is based on, yes, Rudder's a recommendation, yes, your training, but also mainly the video, okay? So, you know, this brings up a lot of interesting points about equity and um, the nature of the business, but if you're not able to video yourself with an orchestra conducting, it's gonna be really hard to move up the rungs. So um, in the past, I've even exchanged a fee for getting the opportunity to videotape my performance. I said, you don't have to pay me or you can pay me much less in an exchange, I want the video. When you're dealing with a professional orchestra, the video can be complicated. You usually have to write and ask for permission. And I've been very fortunate uh, at the Alabama Symphony that the musicians have been very supportive of me and have been willing to let me videotape some rehearsals that I've done with them. And that has been extremely helpful, um, not only in actually improving my craft, but in applying for different festivals, master classes, and professional development opportunities. Thanks. We do have a question from Emily Rushing. She's a good supporter of ours. She asks, with video being so important, I guess that you wouldn't have blind auditions for conductors the way you can with musicians. So can you give us a perspective on how hard it may be for women to win jobs when you don't have the blind aspect? Great question. Thank you. So Yes, I mean, I actually use a running joke. There are no blind conducting auditions because people literally have to look at you to, audition, to, to follow you. Um, so actually, funny note on this, before video became mainstream, you know, my conducting teacher at Michigan, he said that when he was coming up, people submitted audio recordings of their performances, which is a totally different mindset because when they do that, the panel is listening for the musical, like, what your music making actually sounds like, which is a totally different experience than watching someone's video. I actually wish that we had it though that way because just because someone looks a certain way on the podium doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna be evoking a certain sound, et cetera, et cetera. But to your point, um, not having a blind auditions um, is, this is an interesting time to ask that question because in the last 10 to 15 years, probably 20 years, there have been huge initiatives to get women conductors hired and to get to break this gender gap. Uh, one example is if you look at the, the earlier slide had Marin Alsop, who's music director of the Baltimore Symphony. She you know, was one of the first women to ever have one of these music director positions um, as a, uh, in, you know, in the States. And um, she, uh, she has this fellowship called the, Ta the Taki Concordia Fellowship. And um, that fellowship is a fellowship just for women and it helps them get their career started. Something like that never would have happened 40, 50 years ago. So um, with that being said, a lot has been you know, done for the better in that direction. I'm trying to think and talk at the same time. So one second folks. Um, I would say that, you know, to your point, nowadays it's, it's, uh, important for orchestras to have equity in, so that's Marin Alsop. That's what I wanted to show you. And I messed it all up. So I won't try to go back anymore. Um, nowadays it's important for orchestras to have as much diversity as they can within their organizations. And sometimes, I'm sure they go into a search for a staff conductor position and they say, we would like a woman for this position. I don't know that for sure, 
but I'm sure that sometimes that that is the case and that's totally fine with me because there's been years of discrimination. So there needs to be some correction there. Um, but you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation maybe 20, 30 years ago. It has changed a lot and obviously for the better, there are probably a handful of 20, 30, 40 uh, women conductors who are at the highest international level right now. So that's a great question. And it applies too for non-white conductors as well. It's It's been um, a huge change in the last few years of wanting to see more of uh, diversity on the podium. Thank you for that question. Um, so I wanted to define various conducting positions for everyone. Um, you know, I'm an assistant conductor, Carlos is a music director. I wanted to go through all the positions that you might see out there uh, in different orchestras and kind of define them for everybody. And then we can take questions about those. I divided them into three tiers. This is tier one. And the first one I'm gonna talk about is uh, the cover conductor. So a cover conductor is essentially like an understudy, someone who studies the scores and is prepared to conduct um, for the scheduled conductor of a given week. Um, if someone is just a cover conductor, they're usually not full-time and they're usually like a contracted employee. Um, at a bigger orchestra, they might have an assistant conductor whose schedule doesn't allow them to cover everything. So they might have to have a cover conductor and an assistant conductor. It all kind of depends on the organization and their needs. Um, next one, down to my role, the assistant conductor. Uh, in almost all cases, this is a full-time staff conductor position. Um, and it usually requires, you know, the person to live in the town that they're working in. And the assistant conductor usually hires them, uh, sorry, handles the majority of covering for the other staff conductors, guest conductors, and the music director. Um, often the assistant conductor will lead the youth orchestra, which is what is it, like in my case, like that at the Atlanta Symphony, uh, Cleveland Orchestra, St. Louis Symphony, San Francisco Symphony, very common. Um, and the assistant conductor often has a large community outreach or education component to the job, which involves programming or choosing the musical selections for education and community. That's me. We'll have to see the other conductors in a later slide. The next is the associate conductor. And depending on the organization, this title has the most varied interpretation. Usually it signifies a conductor who is not the music director, but is full-time and has many duties like an assistant conductor, but with a larger set of responsibilities or a larger variety of programming opportunities, such as conducting regular subscription concerts. It's often a promotion step from assistant conductor. And in some orchestras, the associate conductors are also the principal pops conductors. I'm thinking of Nashville Symphony. The associate conductor also handles the pops. So again, these titles are just titles. The industry can use them the way they want, um, but there is a certain level of hierarchy in there uh, that is, might be interesting for you guys. All right, tier two, guest conductor. Conductor contracted by the orchestra, usually through an artist management company, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, to come to town and conduct a week of rehearsals and concerts. Usually it's just for one week, um, but in the middle of the 20th century, guest conductors would often stay in town with an orchestra for up to a month at a time. And obviously that was, you know, before air travel was mainstream and there was usually train or driving involved. And so, you know, if 1950s of George Zell, director of Cleveland Orchestra was gonna guest conduct Boston, he would probably stay for three to four weeks and do programs. And that also freed that music director up to guest conduct somewhere else for a month. So it was kind of like just swapping. And actually back then they often did swap. Principal guest conductor. So um, if an orchestra has uh, a lot of guest conductors coming to it, the managements of the, these orchestras and opera companies are always on the lookout for artists who work really well with their musicians. Uh, and when they notice that someone fits, they often offer them this semi-permanent role known as principal guest conductor. And although they are titled and have a position with the orchestra, they are still usually compensated per engagement. 
and it's not a salaried contract. Um, and they conduct several programs each season. And there's usually some level of exclusivity when it comes to scheduling, which means um, they would have to book their engagements with that orchestra before they were able to book outside engagements. That totally has to do with the contract. So um, anytime a conductor is working with an organization, there's some kind of contract in place, whether it's a multi-year contract or a year-by-year contract, totally depends on the orchestra, the conductor, the scenario. And oftentimes it will say, you know, you must book your weeks with us first or something like that, or you must book your weeks with us by this date. And there's a lot of scheduling conflicts and scheduling messes that come up in this. We can talk more about that later. I just did want to say one thing about um, what I have here, artist management companies. This might be something that's completely foreign to some of you if you're not um, you know, in the music industry, but anytime we have a soloist on stage with the orchestra um, or a guest conductor or someone that is not a full-time member or an employee of the Alabama Symphony, there's usually a representative of that artist on the other end of the planning process that represents them and handles their contract and their fee negotiation and all of that stuff. And in turn, that artist management person gets a cut of the fees that that artist makes. That's how that business works. Um, and I wanted to point that out because of COVID-19 and the mass cancellations that we've seen across the industry worldwide, um, Columbia Artist Management Incorporated, which is was, I should say, the most powerful and influential artist management company in the country, just folded completely, um, which was a huge... Um, seismic blast through the industry is the top of the top artists, the most sought after musicians were represented by CAMI, as it's called, Columbia Artist Management. Um, it was just announced two days ago that Opus 3 Artist Management, which is one of the other big ones in based out of New York, was just bought out by San Francisco Conservatory of Music, um, which is the first time that that's ever happened, where a school of music is buying a artist management company. So they're going to, they're, they're very uh, secretive at this point as to what that's going to mean. But in general, you know, without concerts, without the artists, the soloists, the conductors getting paid, these businesses have no revenue at all whatsoever. So uh, it's a very interesting time to be looking at the music industry. Interesting and scary. All right. Uh, tier two continued. Oh, there's Chris. Hope oh, Chris is here. And if he's not, I miss you, Chris. Um, Principal Pops Conductor. This is another title. Oversees the Pops season programming and conducts all Pops series programs. Often has several Principal Pops Conductor positions at once and travels often as a guest conductor. Remember, I'm talking about not Chris specifically, like I said in the disclaimer, but this position in general. Chris does conduct several orchestras and guest conducts, but I just wanted to clear that up. So films with live music often require a guest conductor who is approved by the film distribution company to conduct the film. So Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, you name it, Ghostbusters, all of those uh, film, uh, live films of music that you've come in to enjoy at the Wright Center, all of those are, you have to be, have special approval. And we're so lucky that Chris has that approval to do the Harry Potters and he's great at it and he's the best of the best when it comes to pop. So. Um, yeah, that's the principal pop conductor. And he'll be our next conductor's corner on January 28th. Okay, profiles of different conducting positions, tier three. So um, that would be the music director. That is the most robust position of any orchestra. So I'm just going to go through these bullet points here. The music director is the principal conductor for most subscription concerts and special events. Generally, the larger the orchestra, I'm going to put an asterisk there. I want to define that for you guys. When I say larger the orchestra, I'm not necessarily referring to the number of bodies in the orchestra. I'm referring to the annual operating budget and the number of weeks that the orchestra plays. So it goes hand in hand. If the orchestra plays 40 weeks, they're going to be have a smaller budget than an orchestra that plays 52 weeks. Um, and that's a whole conversation that we don't really have time for. It's kind of union language. And it's just, it basically has to do with the 
the amount of services there are and the amount of concerts that are given. So I just wanted to explain that a bit and I'm happy to answer any questions about that. So I'm gonna read that sentence again. Generally, the larger the orchestra, the fewer weeks the music director conducts. So at the Cleveland Orchestra, I know they have 22 master weeks, masterworks concerts, and I think the music director conducts 10. So just to put that into perspective. This was not always so, like I was saying earlier, in the early part of the 20th century, the music director was conducting almost all the time, including outdoor concerts, pops concerts, and um, different kinds of education concerts. And I, th I think it's fabulous that our music director, Carlos, conducts all of our masterworks and so many other events. Because when you look back to the early part of the 20th century that I was referring to, these music directors had a much more um, presence in their communities. And everybody, you know, would see them at the grocery store. And it was kind of normal to have, you know, the town doctor and the town lawyer and the town music director, you know, it was kind of part of the community. And so I'm really happy that we have a semblance of that at the ASO. So buckle up because I'm about to explain all the responsibilities that a music director has, right? The music director is tasked with managing the long-term artistic direction of the orchestra, which includes, but is not limited to subscription programming, hiring new musicians, I'm gonna put an asterisk there. They don't hire them on their own. There is a specific regulated um, audition process that is blind, that is you know, mandated by the Ixon, the union that we are part of. And there are a lot of rules for that, but the conductor usually comes in in the last round and has either final say in the vote or has two votes. So they're very involved in hiring new musicians, but it's not solely their job. The musicians in the orchestra are the ones that evaluate the, the candidates throughout the process. So hiring new musicians, dealing with underperforming musicians, which is different in every orchestra, uh, evaluating new musicians for tenure, evaluating staff conductors, choosing guest conductors, and cultivating a vision for the sound and style of the orchestra. Music director is almost always not involved in matters of musician compensation or musician contract negotiations. So that's kind of the artistic side and the managing the artistic side. Um, engages with the community to spread the orchestra's mission. The spokesperson for the orchestra is heavily involved in matters of development, fundraising, and building relationships between the orchestra and the community. It is an all-encompassing job, which requires a huge amount of responsibility for the artistic and financial success of an organization. And having said that, we are so fortunate to have Carlos Iscari as our maestro and our music director. Um, so the music director is in, in uh, if you think about it, it's almost like you think about a corporation um, and their CEO, COO, things like that, CFO, whoever is, you know, at the top of a company that's steering the artistic direction, meaning like, you know, if it's a car company, someone's deciding what's our theme for the cars. What's the color of the cars? What's our color palette? What are the body styles gonna be like? You know, every, if you notice kind of, you know, when uh, Ford comes out with a new line of cars every year, there might be a little theme between the cars. You know, each model is different, but there might be a slight hue towards one kind of genre of car or genre, you know, color scheme, or they might be really focusing on fuel efficiency this year, as opposed to last year, they were focusing on really like big turbo engines. Just a little, and um, you know, a little analogy there. You could also relate it to sports. Like a different coach is going to focus on a different approach to training the players, to the game strategy, to how you're going to talk to the to the players in the middle of the game and work on their morale and all that stuff. All of that is kind of what the music director does. And I would say, in a lot of ways, it has to do with repertoire. You know, the music. There's so much music for orchestra, ranging all the way from, you know as early as the middle 1400s, all the way to present day. The repertoire that the conductor chooses, the music director chooses over, uh, over time really does impact the style of the orchestra. You know, if you have a conductor who's doing a lot of classical music, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, that's gonna lighten up the style of the orchestra over time. You know, I mean, any good orchestra can shift styles, right? But if you do a whole bunch of one thing, it does kind of tend to make an impact on the style of the orchestra. So just something 
to think about. And, you know, orchestras are kind of like sponges, you know, <laughs> that just came to my mind. I don't know why, but, you know, you can, when you use a sponge a lot, it kind of gets filled up with stuff and you can rinse it out, but there's always going to be like something that sticks. Right. So for example, I mean, I'm just going to throw out like Chicago symphony. They still have attributes in their playing and their, their orchestra style that comes from George Schulte and Fritz Reiner before that. So orchestras have a way of kind of retaining ideals from a music director and it rolls over from music director to music director. We do have another question, actually, from Emily Rushing again about the development duties and stuff. You know, a lot of people don't think about conductors doing those types of roles. Is that something they talk to you about in school, you know, any of the admin side of it? How involved is the music director typically in the admin side of things? Well, I was really lucky that I had, you know, was in an amazing program at University of Michigan where the teacher, uh, Ken Kiesler, he, you know, no, no teacher is perfect, but he had a ton of professional experience. He was music director of an orchestra for 20 years. He had guest conducted all over the place. And he knew that we needed to know a little bit about this stuff. So, I mean, simple things from meeting with board members to talking about the vision of the orchestra to sharing your passion with a group of school kids to going to Rotaract and talking to them. All of that is development. Even if it's not fundraising, it's fundraising. Right. If you're building, if you're bringing people into the family of the orchestra, even if they just come to a concert, they're paying for a ticket. You know, it's all kind of all encompassing. Um, there was a really cool experience we had at Michigan where um, the executive director of the Lansing Symphony, which is the capital of Michigan, Michigan State is, I don't like Michigan State, oh, blue. Um, uh, she would come down and she would do a week of mock interviews with us where we would have to we would have to prepare a whole presentation on our vision for this made-up orchestra that she came up with that had a certain budget and a certain amount of services and we actually had to plan a whole season and we had to be on budget and we had to do all of that as an exercise Um, and we had to come up with two different uh, fundraising initiatives and have like tears for giving and rewards and we had to have it all thought out Um, I would say every orchestra is different. Every orchestra is structured different in terms of what they want the music director to do in terms of development. I know that like at the big, big leagues, you know, the 10, 20, 30, $40 million a year orchestra budgets, that conductor is making asks, like big asks. Because at that point, you know, thinking of someone like um, at the Metropolitan Opera, Anik Nezesikon, I mean, he's a worldwide celebrity, basically. Someone like Leonard Bernstein, you know, any uh, philanthropist would be thrilled to have that person at their dinner or whatever. And you're going to ask, like, I would love for you to support the symphony. You know? And it comes, you know, sometimes it's better to come from the music director. Sometimes it's better to come from development. Or sometimes I've heard that you build the relationship and then the development folks make the ask. I mean, it just depends. But the music director is definitely involved in this concept of, building community within the orchestra, which does involve fundraising. All right, conducting careers are multifaceted and diverse and no two are alike and say that for certainty. One of the things that plays into that is travel, scheduling, etc. So one thing you might not know is that conductors often hold several job titles at once in addition to yearly guest conducting engagements. I'm just going to use our music director, Carlos Iskari, for example. He's our music director. He's also music director of the American Youth Symphony in Los Angeles, which, by the way, is not really a youth symphony. It is a pre-professional orchestra, and they sound incredible, so check them out. Um, And then he has guest conducting engagements when he has time in his schedule. That's, That's very typical. That's normal. Obviously, not as far along in my career, but I have my position have my own ensemble that I'm music director of Apex Contemporary Performance that I do in Michigan three or four times a year when schedule permits. And then I, I try to get as many guest conducting engagements as I can at this stage that also fit into the schedule of ASO. So based on that, you can imagine that scheduling quickly becomes a nightmare, right? Because you're trying to juggle all of these different weeks and travel schedules and opportunities. Um, and managers can often help with the calendar, right? It's so hard to keep track of the preparation for these, the musical preparation and all of this other stuff. So the manager um, 
is key in terms of handling it. I mean, you don't even have to have necessarily a manager. Some people hire assistants to handle the schedule, to handle the travel, all of that. Um, schedules start to fill up two to three seasons in advance for the most in-demand conductors. So it's kind of a, it's like a little game of chess, uh, trying to get the right weeks at the right time. So interesting. Conductors are usually required to prioritize scheduling to their primary position and negotiating outside engagements. Scheduling is often part of their contract negotiations. For example, in the contract, it will say how many weeks each season is a conductor being contracted for? When do these weeks have to be scheduled by? How long in advance does the conductor have to keep these weeks? All of this stuff is very key when it comes to managing a career because, for example, let's say your music director is somewhere and you have to conduct 20 weeks and those weeks need to be booked by September 1st, right? But what if on September 2nd, after you book those weeks, you get a call for a last minute cancellation and now that week conflicts with a week you already just booked with your primary position. So, you know, this kind of dance of scheduling is, is all the time what happens with conductors. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from someone much farther down the line in their career for me that said, you know, oh my gosh, I could have conducted XYZ Orchestra. I got asked to, but I had a prior engagement and that's my primary position. And it's just, not only am I, what, could I not do it, it would have been ethical, right? So you kind of just have to have the honor system there. Timing and luck is everything. We'll talk about luck later on. Do you have a manager to manage your schedule? I do not have one yet. I would like to have one, but I think it's something that will probably hopefully happen in the next two to three years. Um, I'm happy with where I am now and what I'm doing, but I've had some meetings with some managers and it's a conversation. It doesn't just happen. Um, you, you can't really ask a manager to just manage you. They have to come to you, but especially when you're younger, but it's a conversation. So it's kind of like a kind of have to court for a while. It's like trying to get an investor or something. You can't just call somebody up and ask. You have to talk to them for a while and pitch your ideas and it's a, long thing. And there are conductors who are extremely successful who don't have managers or self-managed. So few, but it happens. And of course, constant travel and busy schedules are powerful for the course for conductors. Constant changes, managing the cycles of a career. So I'm just going to put a little asterisk in here. You know, I'm 29 years old. I, this is my, I have a decent amount of experience, but I haven't gone through a lot of the things I'm about to share. So I'm just going anecdotally based off what I've read, what I've heard, and what people who have had this experience have told me. So again, not speaking from personal experience uh, for the second part of this page. Um, so unlike musicians of an orchestra, in the United States, conductors do not have the ability to gain tenure status from the organization. If you go down the doctorate road and you get a position at university, of course you can get tenure there. But in the professional like for a better word, professional uh, arena, there is no real scenario for lifetime employment or job security with one organization forever. Therefore, conductors must always be looking to build relationships with new orchestras and maintain a presence that keeps them engaged with the industry at large. Managers also help with that. Managers are very much thinking about their income, which is based on your income. So they're always trying to think of, you know, two steps ahead. Contracts for conductors vary in length. Music director is likely to be offered a longer term contract uh, than other staff conductors. Very common for a music director to have their contract extended anywhere from two to 10 times, depending on the length of the contracts. So I didn't find like a statistic on the longest running contract ever or like the longest number of years someone's been music director, but um, you know, it can go up to 20 years, 25 years. I think Michael Tilson Thomas is leaving the San Francisco Symphony after 25 years. So, um, you know, it just depends. Due to the eventuality that a music director will one day move on to another position or will not be renewed for whatever reason, opera and orchestra management teams are often scouting for candidates for the next music director. This is where the guest conducting comes in and um, having a principal guest conductor is often a good candidate for music director. Some orchestras will have a public search where they'll, they'll post a job. We're looking for a music director. Um, that's usually more at the smaller regional levels. For example, I don't think the Alabama Symphony would do something like that. They would handle it more um, discreetly. They would look for recommendations within the business. 
And many times orchestras hire a consultant who specializes in music director searches or a headhunting agency will be contracted to manage the search. All of that is to be said that, you know, it's kind of like when you're looking for a new CEO of a company, you don't put an ad in the paper that says CEO. You know, it's something that has to be carefully thought about. You have to look at what someone's doing, look at their reputation, ask around about them. Um, musicians, for sure, will talk to other musicians who have worked with that conductor. And your reputation is a really everything. So I would say that, you know, that's how these things all kind of glue together. We have another one, and this is from Dr. Blunt and his wife. He's a physician's and faculty member. He says many conductors seem to spend a fair amount of time in Europe. Is that a favorable career move in and of itself, or is it solely to play with those orchestras? Like, do they get better contracts over there as opposed to orchestras in the States? Is there a preference, or is it just for, you know, to help your reputation? Great question. It's a complicated answer. So. Oh, okay. The contracts are not necessarily better. First of all, in general, the United States is the best paying country for musicians, period. Um, if you look, if you were to average everything out, um, Great Britain is on par with us. France is on par with us. Um, but of course the taxes. So um, I have a lot of friends who guest conduct in Europe. They make terrible fees because of the taxes. So just throwing that out there. Unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, the musical tradition that we are a part of is stemming from the European tradition. The orchestras that first started here, the New York Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony, orchestras like that, they were all musicians that came from Europe that started that orchestra. The classical music as we know it, most of those composers, that we play are from Europe. So there is a certain kind of romanticization of the European approach and the working in Europe and working with European orchestras. I'm not gonna say if they're better or worse because there are so many different orchestras with so many different strengths. I would say it's considered, it's considered uh, good if you are working in America, but you also have gigs in Europe and have experience in Europe. Uh, whether or not I think that that is a fair assessment or a necessary assessment that, oh, you have to have experience in Europe to be considered legit, I don't necessarily agree with that. But the general rule is the more orchestras you've worked with, the more experience you have, and the more experience you have, theoretically, the better you should be at your job and the more you can bring to the table. Um, and if you can work in different cultures, in different languages, that's also, <clears throat> excuse me, really helpful. Um, but the fees in Europe are not as great, especially for young guest conductors. And again, the taxes and you have to pay the managers and there's a lot of that. But again, any, I mean, you said you can conduct the, you know, the Royal Stockholm Orchestra tomorrow and you don't get a fee, I'm on the plane going to do it. So it's, it's, it's a weird thing, right? It's not really about the money. It's more about the experience and possibly maybe the prestige that you get from having done that thing. Um, but it's, there's always a, a catch 22. I hope that answers the question. It's, it's a big question. It's a very good question, actually. Very astute. So speaking of contracts, I wanted to share this little comparison here, a tale of two podiums. So on the right here, sorry, excuse me, the left, we have a gentleman you might not have heard of. His name is uh, Arild Remerite. And when I was in school at Eastman, uh, he was the music director of the Rochester Philharmonic. But unfortunately, he was only there for six months. <laughs> it was not a good fit with the musicians once he became music director, and they all voted to terminate his contract after six months. Of and they basically said, we're not going to work with this guy. So the board terminated him. And it was all over the news, the, the music news, which is not in the news for most people. But it was a huge scandal, I guess you could say. Um, and I think it's good. I think if the musicians really feel that this isn't a tenable relationship, then they should part ways. I'm sure they had to pay him out for that contract. Sure, it cost him a lot of money. Uh, so 
But again, if the musicians are not going to work with them and they might be like possibly striking over it, it's, that's a bad PR move. You don't want that. So I don't know any of the details about how it actually went down. I'm just speculating for the sake of this conversation, but that's one thing. On the other hand, you have Yannick Nézessigan, probably the most famous and well-paid conductor on the planet right now. Um, was appointed music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra years ago, but just this year in 2020, they appointed, they extended it to in perpetuity. So the folks who asked about tenure, this is probably the most recent example that I can think of, of a conductor getting anything kind of like a tenure role. They basically said they want him to be there as long as he wants to be there, as long as possible in perpetuity. So if it goes well, this is what's going to happen. If it goes poorly, this is what's going to happen. So I will say this is extremely rare and this almost never happens. It just depends on the relationship between the board and the musicians. Again, this was like a huge scandal. This was also like a huge deal, but in a positive light. Just trying to give you guys some context, some things to, you know, some end posts in this spectrum. of Actually going off of that before you move on real quick. Are conductors a part of the musicians union and union contracts, you know, with the termination of that six month contract, was that union or how are conductors involved in that aspect? It's a good question. I believe that if you're talking about a local union, a conductor can be a part of that as someone who freelances as a conductor. I believe that's something that is done, especially like in big unions and big cities. Like if I'm a freelance conductor in New York and I want to work and the uh, Broadway, I think there's a union for that that you'd have to be a part of. In general, conductors are not part of the musicians union because the musicians union, if you look at the history of it, was kind of brought about because conductors were kind of abusing their power. Not kind of, they were straight up abusing their power. And in the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s in this country, there was huge tyrannical reign by conductors and they could fire people on the spot and it was a terrible work environment and there's so many other factors. Musicians were being way underpaid and there's, there's a lot to go into that. But that being said, um, the union would get involved. Let's say a conductor is behaving inappropriately in rehearsal. Either they're going over time, they are inappropriately addressing a musician, they're inappropriately speaking to the orchestra or to a musician on the break in between rehearsals, like any kind of mismanagement from the conductor side, which is totally unacceptable. That the, the, the union is there to protect that musician from those scenarios. So it doesn't really make sense for the conductor to be necessarily part of that union. I don't even think like, for example, like Ixam, which is our union, I don't even think conductors can join it because it's for orchestra and opera musicians. So that's the whole point. So I, I would guess in general, I would say no, but it's so important that conductors do know the union, know the regulations and they know the policies. You just absolutely cannot not know those things. It's like knowing your your job, your workplace protocol, um, especially if you're a music director, because the music director in any orchestra is required to main, to handle issues of artistic performance. So if they feel a musician is playing poorly, they can't just go up to the musician and yell at them and tell them that they're playing poorly or like even speak to them about it casually. It has to be done in a very strict process which is outlaid with every orchestra's rules. It has to be done officially. There's a whole system. So um, to answer the question, essentially, no. But conductors, uh, I think like what, what makes me happy is that in 2020, I see that orchestra musicians and conductors are on the same playing field in terms of the, their value in the organizations. And they are, like, it's very collaborative. And if you look at how things were in the 20s and 30s and 40s, it was very much tyrannical and like, uh, you know, like dictatorship, top down kind of a thing. Like you're the musicians and I'm the conductor and you're going to do what I say. That's kind of what the books say it used to be like. So thank God we're not there because music is about connection and collaboration and, you know, basically like giving yourself over to the greater good. And you can't do that in a in a uh, toxic work environment. So thank goodness for all those regulations. So in conclusion, the career journey for a conductor is completely unpredictable. Uh, you know, I, I just thought this was kind of cute. You know, you're in school, you think, oh, I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna get to a festival, then I'm gonna get an assistant job, then I'm gonna be there for two years and get another assistant job. And then I'm gonna like 
get a manager and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it doesn't work in a stepwise manner. It never does. It's always this kind of crazy journey. You know, you're living in this country and then you're living in this country and then you get this job and you do this job and it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's not a simple life by any means. Um, but it's an interesting life and it's a really rich life full of amazing experiences and you get to make music for a living and you get to pour over these scores, which are written by like some of the greatest geniuses ever. I mean, and for me, what I, I love music, but I love people. I love people the most and the people you get to work with, the musicians you meet, the musicians you get to collaborate with. I mean, to me, that's everything. And seeing how all this, uh, there's so much nonverbal communication that goes on between the different musicians and the conductor. And there's this kind of melting pot of energy on stage. And to me, that's, what's really beautiful. So totally worth the craziness. So what do I do? Considering that everything and what I think any conductor should do, um, is focus on the controllables. You don't know when the call is going to come to step in for, you know, some so and so at the at the Cleveland Orchestra. You never know when that's going to happen. You don't know if it's ever going to happen. It might not be your journey. So you just have to focus on what you can control. Um, here are kind of my goalposts, if you will, personal and artistic integrity every single time you're on the podium and never taking a chance to be on the podium for granted, which as a young conductor is, is not easy to, you know, we usually don't take things for granted because we're trying to get opportunities and we're coming, you know, we're not conducting every single week. So we're hopefully all you know, not taking it for granted. Uh, one of my teachers uh, in my undergrad, Brad Loveman, he said this, if every time you give a performance of a lifetime, then when you actually do have to give the performance of a lifetime, you're ready. So what do I mean by this? It's so important to not have, oh, this is just a little concert. It's just a kid's concert. This isn't like a masterworks, so it doesn't matter. Like, no, it all matters, right? Every time you perform, you've got to go for it like it's your last time. Because then when you actually do have to go for it, that's just what you do, right? You should always have your um, highest possible performance at all times. I would say this one's really key because conductors have such long careers. Uh, if you if you close your eyes and imagine a conductor, you're probably thinking of an old person, older person, usually an older man, unfortunately, because of years and years of sexism and conditioning of our brains to think the conductors are all men. But you know what I mean? Like, I usually ask people that question, like, what do you think of when you think of the conductor? And they close their eyes and they see an old guy. So commitment to lifelong growth in all areas, leadership, musicianship, intellect, et cetera. I mean, if you're not growing, you're getting worse, right? And I always think about this to myself, like if I was music director somewhere, I would want my musicians that I would collaborate with, I would always expect them to be getting better and staying on top of their game. So like, I need to be doing the same. Like I should not be coming to the podium again, uh, the same musician I was, I should be 0.001% better. Uh, building good relationships with all people we encounter in our personal and professional lives. I think that's just a good mantra in general. Don't have any enemies. Be kind. Treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Again, reputation is everything. There's no room for being a jerk in this business anymore. Actively seeking out opportunities to work and gain exposure. I mean, that's key for me right now. I mean, social media is a huge part of that. Um, as annoying as it can be, keep up with it. You know, people like managers and orchestras and other people who can engage you are on social media. Um, some, a simple thing like going to an event at an art gallery somewhere in a city that you're visiting and chatting with people. And then you run, you talk to someone who works for the symphony and then they get your card and then, you know, they call you for a concert. I mean, that stuff happens. That's not, you know, that's, it's just like doing business. Who you know is your currency. Being true to ourselves when it comes to musical decisions, repertoire choices, projects that we take on an artist that we collaborate with. I think this is really important. Again, there is so much repertoire out there. There's so much music that a conductor could study, could program. And I think for me, I, I don't wanna be generic. I don't wanna be a conductor who just does everything, all the standards. I want to have a specific repertoire that's associated with me. I'd rather only do what I love the most and do it at the very best level. I don't wanna to try to be every kind of conductor there can be. Know? For example, like I'm not particularly interested in doing like, you know, the standard operatic canon, like doing magic flute or doing 
Wagner's Ring Cycle. Like, that's amazing music. I don't have a problem with it. It just doesn't particularly light me up or make me want to do that in the pit with singers all the time, you know? Want to do the ring without words on stage with just instruments? Perfect. I'm down. Any of the instrumental music from operas? Perfect. But just as a side example, I'm not really that interested in that. And I'm okay with that. That's for other, there are other people who can do that. And then the final thing is praying that we get lucky. And I know that probably makes you chuckle, but it is so true. I mean, being at the right place at the right time, having a free week at the right time, talking to the right person at the right time so they can call you for that free week at the right time. I mean, all this stuff is so mind boggling if you try to control it all. You can't. I've tried. Trust me, you can't. So you just have to do your best every day, follow the things you can control and hope for the best. And yeah, that's basically what, what I try to do and what I would tell any conductor to do at any age or any stage of career. Thank you for coming to my Not Ted TED Talk. And now I have, can take some questions and I'm gonna close the screen share so that I can see your faces. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was great. You did a great job. Yeah, we have a couple more questions. We have one more from Emily Rushing. How free is a conductor to choose what they want to wear on the podium? Good question. Just a fun little like. I think you can question. wear whatever you want as long as it's professional. Um, I think it depends. Different orchestras have different policies. Um, and maybe it's just seems like there are policies. But um, no, I think you can wear whatever you want. They might, for super formal events, insist like tails. But honestly, like I'm thinking of the, what could be more formal than the Vienna Philharmonic New Year's Eve concert. Um, and of course, their, their orchestra has a, a specific uniform, like literally a gray tuxedo that they all have to wear. Uh, and like a, a, a dress for the women, like it's have to wear that exact thing. But the conductor who did it last didn't, he was wearing his normal like smock kind of shirt thing. So yeah, you can wear whatever you want. And that's actually kind of part of what conductors do to distinguish themselves sometimes is they have their kind of look of things that they wear. And, um, you know, some people don't want to wear all black anymore. We're kind of sick of that. So, you know, I think that's one of the ways we can kind of connect with our audience. The audience usually, you know, it's funny when you come to a masterworks, very, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't want to say anyone, but most people aren't wearing tuxedos to come to the symphony, right? They're dressed nicely, but they're not wearing tuxedos. So if the conductor is wearing something that's a little different than the musicians, it's kind of like a bridge for the audience a little bit, which I never really thought of, but I guess that could be something. Yeah. Good question. Great. And then another one from Dr. Blunt. Many orchestras have summer homes with different playlists, etc. From a conductor perspective, it is is this a fun opportunity to let loose and do new things or is it difficult, hard work? Summer home. Uh, yeah. So I've never had this experience. I mean, we have railroad park, of course, which isn't like a different home. Um, Cleveland orchestra. I'm just think, mentioning Cleveland orchestra. I used the Detroit symphony because that's what I grew up with. They would play um, at an outdoor venue all summer. I think anytime you can go to a different venue, you're gonna get a different audience. And that's great because you're getting a chance to interact with new folks. Um, and there are always challenges to playing in these outdoor amphitheater type things, whether it's uh, amplified or uh, what have you. So I think it's, it's a great experience to go somewhere new. And again, you know, some, you never know when that family that only comes to the summer concerts is gonna to decide to try to go to the concerts during the year. And you just have to always be trying to give your best to every concert, to every audience, every time, because that's how you build. That's how you build a huge community that's always going to follow you. Yeah, he was thinking of Tanglewood and Saratoga specifically. Well, Tanglewood's a very interesting situation because, I mean, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, they're, played, they're paid extremely well, but they're a very hard-worked orchestra. They work their buns off. They have very few downtime, down weeks. And when they go to their summer festival, it's not like pop, only Boston Pops. They have Tanglewood Boston Symphony concerts. So they might have to do two to three programs in one week. So just mentioning that, like, just because they're in the summer home, they're not just doing pops. Of course, every orchestra is different. I know like the Cleveland Orchestra, they have their summer pop season in Blossom, but they also have, um, sorry, they also have, like a classical series at, at Blossom. So yeah, good points. 
right. Well, that is the last of our questions. Again, Kevin, thank you so much. You did a wonderful job. And thank you again to everyone who joined us, whether it was live here via Zoom or if you're listening to the recording later on, either on our website or on Spotify. We're so thankful to you. Again, our next Conductor's Corner is going to be on January 28th at 7 p.m. And it's going to feature our principal POPs conductor, Chris Confessori. So look out for that topic to be announced at a later date. But in the meantime, look out for insider evening invitations, other emails from us, and pay attention to our social media for other upcoming events. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Y'all have a wonderful evening. Bye.